I'm Sheila Vashi, an investor at Basis Ventures, an early stage venture capital fund investing in founders that transform the way people work. I'm excited to bring you Hypergrowth, the early years, a show that dives into the strategy, channels, and hires that kickstarted the growth journey of the most successful companies. Hey folks, I have been so excited for this day. We are welcoming Morgan Brown to the show. Morgan is the VP of growth at Shopify, a company that we have all been dying to hear more about. Uh, He leads the customer acquisition, growth marketing teams there, including performance marketing, lifecycle, customer acquisition, and international teams. So as you can imagine, a pretty pivotal leader at the company. Prior to Shopify, Morgan was a product leader at Facebook focusing on growth for newsfeed and profiles, and later building Messenger for Kids. And before that, he was a COO at Inman News, a company that I was very familiar with when I was at Open Door. Finally, last but not least, he's also written a book called Hacking Growth, which I am dying to get into with all of you. So Morgan, as I said, we're so thrilled to have you here today. Welcome. Thanks. Super excited to come and talk with you, Sheila. Thanks for having me. We've got so much to dig into, but perhaps you can start by telling us a little bit about your background, focusing on Facebook and now Shopify. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of the short story on me is that I've spent most of my career sitting at the intersection between digital marketing and product development, which really I had honed into over the years as a a core lever, core differentiated way that apps and products grow online versus say kind of traditional marketing efforts. So have really had one foot in kind of each of those worlds. And it really continues to to this day. Um, But at Facebook, I started, I was a, uh, well, everyone there is really a product manager uh, in some extent when you're in the technology uh, org at Facebook, but I was a, a PM really responsible for growth. We were looking for opportunities to drive uh, engagement and retention across core services in the Facebook Blue app. And then ultimately as part of a team working on new uh, big bets for the company, uh, was the uh, product leader for Messenger Kids, which is a family-driven messaging app that works with uh, Messenger accounts and gives uh, parents control over the experience um, for kids who are, you know, under the age of of thirteen. So, you know, kind of again working on growth on one end, and then really kind of owning the the full product development uh, function for Messenger Kids, and now kind of at at Shopify uh, again working on the. Uh, the acquisition part of growth. And so really focused on how do we bring Shopify to the world and how do we help an entrepreneur anywhere in any corner of the globe get started and uh, with Shopify and be successful. So yeah, I think that's really what's interesting about this whole space is that, you know, distribution and retention is tied into product use. And how do you bring those two things together is kind of the sweet spot of, of where I spent most of my time. And what I think is most interesting uh, out there. I could not agree more. And I do think that that intersection is what most founders, most early stage companies are interested in. They want to figure out how to put the building blocks in place to set up a culture to really deliver on that. So let's, let's start with talking about your book, which is Hacking Growth, which yep. is really the handbook for that. Uh, maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about the theory behind Hacking Growth. Sure. So I wrote Hacking Growth with Sean Ellis, who is kind of, uh, if that name sounds familiar, he was an early marketing hire at uh, 
Dropbox, Eventbrite, um, and some other great companies. Uh, and he kind of coined the phrase growth hacking, which um, you can love it or hate it. Uh, even, even today, I think it's really been appropriated and kind of like taken to the extreme. So, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of it anymore. But the, the general idea, I think the theory behind the book um, and the concept is really still valuable and, and, and super critical. And, and, and that thesis is, is that the companies that grow the fastest understand how they grow, and then they learn the fastest about how to make the most of those opportunities you know, against their competitive set. So really what that means is that they understand kind of their core growth model. You know, some people call it a growth loop. Some people call it a growth engine. Whatever you call it, it's, it's basically understanding how the business grows, creates growth, whether that's a sales-driven process, a self-serve-driven process, a network effect, whatever, they, they truly get it. And then they've actually organized themselves in a way with, a set, with people, process, team, org structure, and so on to allow themselves to actually take real ownership over that growth engine and then learn about it and make it as performant as possible. And so... This book, we wrote it four years ago at this point now, so it's it's been out for a while, but really was to help people understand those different pieces of the of the puzzle um, because I think a lot of people will look at a given tactic or a given company and it's easy to draw the wrong conclusions from any one example, but we tried to reduce it into a set of patterns and models uh, that would be helpful for anyone trying to figure this stuff out. That makes a lot of sense. And maybe you can talk through one or two examples of the models and how, if you're a founder and an early stage company, how you can identify which pattern you fit into for your growth model or growth loop, as you called it. Yeah, sure. And I'll try to hit them pretty surface level, obviously lots more in the book. But um, yeah, I mean, at the, 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 at the core of it is you have to have a product that some audience really wants and loves. We call it having a must-have product. This is, this is the product market fit argument. Um, trying to build growth on top of a product without product market fit is a recipe for long-term pain and suffering. Um, you know, it's the ultimate leaky funnel or burning a lot of capital without a lot of return. So one, really understanding if your product is must-have, that's usually defined by a very stable retention curve over some period of time, or if you're very early on, it's high uh, signal in terms of qualitative feedback around uh, how how meaningful the, the product is. Um, once you feel like you have kind of that, that product market fit, then it's really um, about getting in the right cross-functional operating model to understand and learn about your growth, your growth model and, and the way that your company is going to grow. And there's a bunch of different ways this happens based on the segment that you're in or what you're trying to achieve. So, you know, for example, a company targeting the enterprise or small business might be more sales-driven someone who is building a social network is going to be more network effects driven and, um, and anywhere in between. But essentially what you're trying to come up with is some hypotheses about how your company will grow and then go see if you can validate them. And then that's where the cross-functional team really comes into play where you have, you know, some people call it product-led growth now, whether you want to call it growth hack or whatever, but it's basically a mix of the right marketing people, whether it's product marketing, digital marketing, et cetera, you know, search engine optimization, you can kind of go down the line. Um, and then the product and engineering resources to actually like try to go make those channels work um, and understand them deeply. And then once you do understand kind of what's working, how do you get those flywheels uh, spinning faster and faster through 
uh, rapid experimentation and learning. And so I think, you know, that ability to learn quickly has been espoused by everyone from like Alex Schultz at Facebook to Jeff Bezos at Amazon. But it's really how do you increase the velocity of that learning um, as a competitive advantage? So those are probably the main takeaways. That is such a helpful framework. And when when should companies be thinking about starting the process here? Is there a such thing as too early? You mentioned post the product market fit phase. Generally, when in a company's life cycle, would you advise that they start thinking through putting these pieces in place? Yeah, I, th- I think right now there is no world where you can start a company without having distribution in mind from the beginning. So I think the you know, the CEO, the founding team, they really need to be thinking about it from the offset in terms of how do we think this thing is going to grow? How do we think it's going to be adopted by the audience? Who is the audience that's going to adopt it? What what are those methods that we think are going to be true? And it can be total hypotheses to start, but having that point of view and, and being invested in it, I think historically, the big mistake was you'd have a CEO or product lead who was all about just creating the product. And they thought of growth kind of as an afterthought that could be bolted on. Go out, hire a, you know, a growth hacker, a head of marketing, and just kind of like slap marketing on top of the, uh, of the product and you get distribution. And I think, fortunately, in the intervening years since we've written the book, you know, that thinking has really evolved. And so I think a lot of that is, is no longer necessarily true, especially in the startup world, is that CEOs and founding teams are really owning uh, distribution outcomes from the beginning, which I think is like absolutely critical. And I think it really comes down to, you know, the maybe the second question behind there is like, when do you try to accelerate growth? And I think when you want to accelerate is really after you have some of that good signal on product market fit. But I think starting from, you know, first principles of like, hey, this is our product and this is how we expect it to grow. And then how do we understand if those assumptions are true or not should happen kind of from the very beginning. So um, yeah, I, I don't think there's a world where you can, where you should really separate. We're going to build this product and then figure out how it grows. Nowadays, you have to do them uh, together. I could not agree more. And and I think you're right in that the evolution of thinking is now in that camp where people start thinking about distribution very early on, which I agree is completely critical when you're thinking about scaling a company. Absolutely. And I think, you know, and then obviously there's certain business models that um, product market fit is a outcome of growth. So, you know, if you have a network effect business, you actually need people in there. You need to establish those uh, those edges of the network. And so um, they often go hand in hand. What about when you joined Facebook or Shopify? Were they beyond the phase where you needed to put some of these principles in place or or were there still things that applied even at that stage? Yeah, I think at Shopify, you know, Shopify is a is a product company at its core. Uh, and then they also ha- and then they have a tremendous brand. And so they're obviously doing a lot of these things um, as as they've grown over time. But a couple of the things that we've really been working on on the acquisition side are, are some of these same principles. So, you know, um, our big uh, customer acquisition channels are paid acquisition through things like AdWords and Facebook and so on, and also organic acquisition through search engine optimization. And so how do we bring this cross-functional operating model, high tempo experimentation and learning methodology and software as leverage to those core parts of the flywheel to make them spin you know, even faster? Um, and so, yeah, even in the companies that are kind of 
that you would consider best in class, I think all still have room to, to, you know, improve here and build on this. Uh, even at, even at Facebook, when we were kind of launching uh, messenger kids, we did a lot of work in trying to understand that's a brand new product for the company, really trying to understand how it grew best, who the, the core users were for it, what they were responding to the most and what, feature set was the most valuable to them. And that led a ton of the product development and distribution strategy through the Facebook ecosystem. And so, um, yeah, I think kind of a, anywhere there's an opportunity to kind of dial that in, but of course there are companies that are kind of best in the world at it uh, as well. Let's dive a little bit more into your experience at Shopify. It has been an insane journey, of course, for the company, especially through COVID, especially the past couple of years. Shopify is an incredible, like, first principles-led company. Uh, Toby Lukey, CEO, and the executive leadership team has always espoused being merchant-obsessed, which is uh, not a slogan. It really is its uh, key key principle. You know, it's always, the principles are do what's best for entrepreneurs and merchants, and then, you know, second, try to make money so that you can do more of number one and never invert the two. And so Shopify has a very, you know, compared to Amazon, Amazon is customer obsessed and everything they do is optimized around customer, kind of at the expense of everything else. Shopify is merchant obsessed. We are solely focused on the entrepreneur. We make all of our decisions kind of around that. And so that's what really filters through all of our growth thinking as well. And so, you know, Toby started the company. He's an engineer. He was trying to build a snowboarding company. Uh, he realized that it's really hard to build e-commerce uh, functionality for the for a website, and so he built it. And he realized, you know, not everyone's an engineer, so if he can make this cart functionality available to more people, it could be helpful and help more entrepreneurs succeed. And so that really is the germ of it. You know, he was really involved with the Ruby community, so has some initial adoption there, and then you know starts to. Um, make a lot of interesting decisions along the way, such as, you know, launching an uh, API, uh, moving to a SaaS model for e-commerce when most of the uh, checkout cart solutions before were more enterprise sales led. So kind of making it accessible to folks, Uh, launching an app store very early on, creating an ecosystem. So, you know, launching an app store just shortly after Apple launched kind of, you know, the the first widely recognized kind of app store. but to allow developers and agencies to plug in, build things for Shopify and extend kind of the core core product. And then continue to add on layers of making commerce better for everyone. So adding Shop Pay, Shopify Capital, uh, Shopify Shipping and Fulfillment Network. But it all kind of spins to your point about kind of flywheels and, and that we're talking about growth engines. It all spins the main Shopify flywheel, which is like more stores, more merchants lead to more Uh, gross merchandise uh, volume through the platform, which allows us to invest more into the capabilities of the platform, which, you know, creates more merchants and more stores and, and around and around it spins. And so when we think about that growth engine from the acquisition side, we're really focused on that more stores, more merchants piece of the puzzle. We figured that the more entrepreneurs we can introduce to Shopify and make successful, you know, the more the more GMV that will be delivered through the platform and that whole thing will spin over and over. And so there's some specific inputs to those. I kind of mentioned paid SEO, you know, improving onboarding is another one, uh, helping them get to their first, helping merchants get to their first sale and so on. So there's a lot to unpack there, but it really goes back to the merchant obsession. 
understanding how those core principles help inform this flywheel for the company and then owning a very specific piece of that growth engine in terms of the merchant input and something that we obsess about and think about every day. Uh, so that's kind of the mental model that I use to kind of think about what our responsibility is. That's super helpful, Morgan. Let's dive a little bit deeper into those customer acquisition channels. We touched on them briefly a couple of times, but I know paid is a major source of new merchants and so is organic. Would love to, to walk through a little bit about how you think about investment across those channels. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, they're both uh, very critical to the growth of Shopify. The um, I think the the big third one is merchant referrals themselves. So a lot of merchants say they discover Shopify because it's recommended by other people uh, that are selling things. They either see it on their website or uh, word of mouth. But in terms of paid and organic, uh, like I mentioned, they're they're both super critical. And so really our general thesis for investment in this areas is how do we create software that creates leverage in each of these areas? Um, and so, you know, you mentioned that kind of Shopify's business has really taken off during COVID. We've also scaled these acquisition channels kind of along the way. And it's really about, okay, for example, on the paid side, how do we get smarter and uh, faster in terms of the learning that we have in these platforms to maximize our return on investment there? So, you know, what's our return on ad spend? And, and for us, we're really focused on, you know, going back to the first principles of the company and, and trying to reach as many merchants as possible is, you know, we're not necessarily optimizing for maximum return on ad spend. You know, we're, 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 we're trying to optimize for reaching as many merchants as possible. We want to get uh, as many merchants that are looking to start a business, you know, into, into and onto Shopify and, and successful with it. So while we are thinking about return on ad spend, we have kind of a different philosophy of like what we're ultimately trying to solve for. Let me pause you there for a second, because that's, that's counterintuitive. So how mm -hmm. is reaching as many merchants as possible different from return on ad spend? Does that mean that sure. you're maybe building awareness, but not bringing everyone into the funnel? Yeah. So it's so if we were just fully focused on return on ad spend, you would only go after the smallest number of highest value customers on paid, right? You would kind of optimize for people that would have maximum LTV at the lowest um, cost to acquire them, which is which makes sense for a lot of business models, for sure. But Shopify is kind of is playing a different game where Shopify wants to empower as many entrepreneurs to be successful. And we also know that within kind of any given merchant that starts on the platform, there will be spiky like black swan events that that occur. So a great example is uh, Gymshark, which is um, an incredible fitness brand, you know, billion dollar valuation uh, started as a drop shipper on Shopify, you know, and then has kind of like taken off. And so while those events are rare, they do happen. Uh, and and so but more importantly, is kind of the general principle that we want to make entrepreneurship more accessible. And so much like, you know, any platform really that like, for example, Amazon Web Services, when anyone can create a website, you get or web app, you get many more websites and web apps, you'll have a very different distribution of what success looks like across that because the bar has come down. And so similarly, with Shopify merchants, we want to make the bar as low as possible. So everyone can try it, knowing that there'll be a much wider range of distributions of success and failure, which we're totally comfortable with. But if we're fully focused on ROAS, we actually would exclude maybe some of those merchants who 
you know, want to start a business on the side because their gross merchandise volume wouldn't be as high or, you know, um, seasonal businesses or, you know, side hustles or, you know, someone just starting with an idea that's going to ramp up over time. And so we intentionally choose to not over-optimize on those because we don't want to get into a local maxima of just going after, you know, small business merchants who generate between X and X million because the LTV is, you know, 3x better than these other folks. We're actually going saying no. We'll use ROAS to help inform our decisions, the quality of our decisions, but we're not going to over-optimize it on to the point where we start excluding merchants from the platform because that runs counter to the first principles of the company. That is super interesting. And as I said, counterintuitive for how some businesses think about yeah. ROI on their investment in ads. So that's that thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the other two channels that you mentioned. Sure. Uh, more kind of organic growth and then referrals. Yep. Those are the two that everyone wants to unlock. So how, yeah, how sure. did you manage it? Yeah, so obviously I've only been at the company for a year, so I can't take credit for how they've unlocked it. But I think, you know, the the organic channel is a hugely important uh, lever for the business. And it really comes down, I know I sound like a broken record, back to kind of this first principle of making merchants successful because all the content is really created for, you know, Hey, if you're a merchant looking to start a business, how does Shopify show up for you in that that different part of your journey? And and how do we kind of, you know, it's so hard to start a company, just kind of level set on, you know, what it takes to kind of spin up a company as a as an entrepreneur. And so if we can bring the barriers down to doing that and and up the optionality of trying out entrepreneurship, that's that's our main focus. So on the organic side, it's like, hey, we know there's millions of queries in Google, YouTube, and everywhere for help with running or starting a business, whether it's like, how do I build my social media following to like what documents I need to get started to, you know, how do I build a brand? And what's amazing is all of this intent, we can kind of create helpful content for for them. And so, you know, the, the flywheel is we understand what entrepreneurs are looking for, both through uh, Google's data, but also through our you know, talking to our merchants every day. We create new content for that. We distribute it via via Google and, and, you know, kind of use that flywheel to power that. But it really comes back to understanding the intent and and what merchants are looking for online and then kind of, you know, creating the content um, and the experiences once they reach that content to kind of get into the, in to, you know, to kind of take that next step along the journey. And so, yeah, I think that's kind of, when founders are trying to figure out their like initial kind of go to market or growth strategy, it's really important to understand how people are going to discover you, right? Like people like entrepreneurs are looking online for help starting a business. So SEO makes a ton of sense. You know, when, when Slack was created, people probably were not looking for, you know, alternatives to email, right? It's kind of a new product category, probably not generating a ton of search demand there. And so their growth models are very different. It spreads through the network of, of people in a given office or a product team or, or whatever. And so, you know, kind of what works for Shopify won't necessarily work for another business model, but just kind of really understanding how that audience is going to find and experience that really informs how we think about investing in those spaces. That makes total sense for Shopify, given that this is what merchants want to know anyway. And so you're yep. filling that need. Do you, how do you think about ROI on that content that you're producing? Or do you see that as more experiential and moving people through the f- funnel versus bringing them into the funnel? 
Yeah, absolutely. So kind of go back to that lens of active merchants and like how how content contributes to that active merchant uh, growth in, in the Shopify flywheel. And so we were able to evaluate, you know, for a given set of keywords, pages, and content types, what that contribution will be to Shopify over time and what it actually is, right? So for a given landing page or a given blog post, we can tie that back to uh, its overall contribution to the funnel, which informs us uh, about the types of content we want to create. At the same time, we understand that, you know, we're not just like trying to create bottom of the funnel conversion content. You know, we're, we're are again, kind of going back to the principles of the company is to kind of be the entrepreneurship company to make uh, entrepreneurship and uh, as, you know, as uh, demystified and as accessible as possible. And so a lot of our content kind of, you know, embraces the the totality of that scope. So we have, have, you know, very upper funnel content, which is, you know, business ideas or starting a brand or, you know, great merchant stories from people who have been successful on Shopify all the way down to very specific things like, hey, here's how to make a logo. Here's how to, you know, here's how to set up international shipping and that type of thing. So we have a very broad view from how to how to educate folks how to help them get started uh, on their entrepreneurship journey, period, and then how to actually get started on Shopify. So we're, we're very intentional about serving, you know, trying to serve all of those segments. That makes a lot of sense. And then what about the last one, referrals? The, yeah. the, the one that everyone wants, but it's so hard to unlock. How did you, what are the yeah. mechanics of your kind of referral yeah. I guess function. Yeah. So we don't actually have a, like a friend get friend referral program per se, but the, there's a couple of things that happen. One Shopify has incredible brand equity, which is really driven by this merchant obsession. Um, you'll hear Toby talk about arm the rebels, but like everything we do really is in service of those merchants. And so merchants feel comfortable referring other merchants to check out Shopify. And so, you know, that is, attributed to like just, you know, great long-term investment in what Shopify stands for being very clear about it. Our brand and communications teams do an awesome job with that. And we measure that every quarter, you know, kind of through our merchant surveys, kind of that trust net promoter score, overall sentiment. Uh, So that's kind of one big unmeasured, but extremely valuable uh, thing. I remember a great story that is told around Shopify that predates me is that when the team used to look at Google trends, you know, they would compare Shopify to e-commerce in Google Trends and what was being searched for the more. And their their goal was to have Shopify be searched for more often than the, the general term e-commerce. And they crossed that threshold a, a few years ago. But, you know, Shopify has now become synonymous uh, with e-commerce and, and even just commerce uh, in general for small business. And so we get a ton of tailwind from that. Um, and so that's just something you have to invest in over time. And we can certainly talk more about how early companies should think about this, but that's just a, an awesome tailwind. And then we also have the powered by Shopify platform. So um, a lot of work has been done. Our partnership teams have done a lot of incredible integrations with companies like Facebook and TikTok and Instagram and, you know, kind of a Google kind of across the board where you can, you know, use your Shopify store to sell on these channels, but then also all the people coming to these channels discover Shopify and some of those people our merchants as well. And so every Shopify store has like a powered by Shopify link on it. And we get kind of, you know, a lot of, we get traffic and also brand awareness through that powered by referral as well. So there's kind of this offline, you know, hard to measure. And then there's this online 
more easy, easier to measure kind of uh, input in terms of the referral. So that's kind of how that flywheel spins. Well, so much to unpack there. First of all, I love the lofty goal of beating e-commerce and now commerce as a search term. I mean, it's hard to wrap your head around you know, what it would take to get there clearly that you know you have. And, and second, I love Arm the Rebels. What a phenomenal, inspiring tagline, really spot on for kind of what you guys encompass as a brand. I'm glad that you mentioned kind of the investment in longer term organic referral brand kind of driven growth Mm -hmm. versus paid acquisition. It is a probably one of the most hotly debated topics on the growth side that I hear at early stage companies today because people know that they need to make the investment, as you said, in brand and offline kind of driven things, but they know it's hard to measure. Yep. So it's always hard to do it versus, you know, investing in something where you can like, like paid growth, et cetera, where you could see a return today. So how would you advise an earlier stage company on balancing the two? Yeah, it's, it is kind of the, the quintessential question. I think the, um, in terms of balancing them, obviously you need to hit short-term numbers to, you know, keep the lights on you know, keep, keep everything running. And so you want to go and, and, and also you're trying to validate a bunch of stuff, you know, so you kind of have to understand what phase you're in, you know, are you in kind of learning mode? You know, are you in pre-product market fit mode? Are you in scale mode? Like, you know, kind of that, that S curve of your business growth, where, where are you on that is kind of important context to have. But I would say on the, the longer term investment side specifically, I think people tend to conflate brand with branding. And so, you know, kind of the idea of a brand of a company, like what it stands for, its first principles, how you talk about it, how that resonates with the people that you want to care about it is is something that you should do from from day one. And so I think that is things like, you know, our merchant obsession, arm the rebels, you know, choose the path that creates the most entrepreneurs. Um, these are all core principles from early days at Shopify that that guide now it's you know a eight thousand ten thousand person company and and that is really the brand you know the the brand isn't branding, which is like billboards or out of home or bus wraps or Super Bowl ads like so I think one is just disambiguating between what we're talking about when we're talking about brand versus branding um, and so I agree most of the branding tactics probably if they're hard to measure early on and they're they're overly costly are probably not the places you want to go first unless you have a very strong opinion that they're like core to the the flywheel that we kind of talked about earlier on um and then i think if you kind of go back to the first principles of that growth engine like how does this product actually get distributed so i kind of mentioned you know slack versus shopify is different an e-commerce company is going to be different than a social network and and kind of think about that that distribution flywheel, then you can figure out what are the right channels to to lay on top of it. And you'll you'll find that some longer term channels are going to be more meaningful in certain business models uh, than necessarily like the the earlier stages. So I wish I had like a do like 70% of this and 30% of that answer, but it is truly that it depends. But I think you need to be thinking about both, even if you make and make a conscious decision one way or the other. And like, if you go down one path, what are you giving up? If you go down the other path, what are you giving up? But I do think every company should be thinking about, okay, what do we stand for? 
what are our brand attributes? How do we how do we validate that with people? And then how do we kind of imbue that into everything we do, whether it's the way we set goals, the way we think about growth, um, the way we think about developing our product, and that ultimately becomes the brand. And then the brand can be expressed through branding, you know, over time, like Shopify just launched a uh, Shopify pop-up shop in, uh, you know, in New York, um, which is a space for entrepreneurs to come in. There's podcasting studios, video editing bays, you know, coffee shop, co-working space. And so that's a cool brand expression of the things we stand for. Um, and that would be branding, but it's not, you know, it's not the brand. And so I think that's how I would really push entrepreneurs to think about it. I love that you made that distinction between brand, kind of what you stand for as a company and investment in brand. And I think you're absolutely right. Th those two don't need to happen concurrently. And one is infused in the product and the experience as you so nicely explained how it works at Shopify. Yeah. And so I think like the, the branding stuff, you can, now there's channels where you can do low cost tests, right? If you want to buy billboards in a city, you know, you can use a platform like AdQuick, you know, for a few thousand dollars, you can get some signal. Yeah, there are geo-based uh, testing platforms available now where you can do market by market tests. So some of the measurability of the branding tactics is getting better and better. And so there is that kind of ability to kind of test some of this stuff. But fundamentally, you want to go back to that that growth engine and ask, like, would out of home fuel this or not is kind of the first question to ask. And is is out of home something that you can test quickly like that? Because you don't oh, it's it's hard to track. So so let's say that you were to throw up a few billboards, as you said, how would you how, how would you consider that a test? Yeah, for sure. So platforms like AdQuick, you can buy, you can spot buy billboards, you know, kind of in a given demo. You can, it's self-serve. It almost works like AdWords these days uh, where you can find inventory and buy it. But I think, you know, basically as a, as a test, what I would be looking for is to do a market holdout test, right? So, or a market lift test where try to pick a couple of geos where I'm going to invest in out of home against a couple of similar geos where I'm not going to invest in out of home and run them for a flight and compare, you know, do a, a lift study between the test and control markets. And so, you know, just kind of thinking through, okay, how can, so it won't be a perfect effect, but kind of assuming the markets are similar pre treatment phase um, and that there aren't any other interventions in the market in the time period, you can get kind of a pretty good signal on the relative lift. Um, now you do need a media buy that's, you know, of a large enough size to have a statistically significant uh, change in your, in your metrics, but you can, you can do the analysis upfront to figure out what that would need to be. And if it makes sense, but yeah, that's kind of how I would tackle it. That's helpful. I remember running that test at open door because we had markets that operated individually as their own little businesses. And because we had done that that market by market, market match test. There were some markets that grew phenomenally fast because we had made the investment. So it was good. It was a good kind of evidence that right. some of those tactics eventually do pay off over time. Totally. That's the way to do it. So Morgan, you've had such incredible varied experiences across companies and stages. If you had to pick one of your experience to do over or do differently, what would you pick and, and why? Yeah, that's a, if I had a do over, I spent most of my early career at startups, very early stage companies where I was, um, trying to learn 
a lot of this stuff. You know, I always say, you know, my degree is, uh, there is no growth degree. My, my degree is in the school of hard knocks, you know, uh, kind of getting beaten up and being part of a lot of failed experiments and failed companies. And so I think, um, if I had to do it over again, and obviously this is super biased and not the right path for everyone, but I probably would have rather started at like a Facebook than then went towards earlier stage companies. And the reason is, is um, I would have understood what like good looks like, kind of like what the success state kind of looks like and had a mental model of where things could kind of go and, and how things kind of run at the highest level. And I feel like that would have saved me a lot of pain around a bunch of uh, paths that were kind of suboptimal for me. So for example, as a, as a marketing and growth person, I probably joined too many companies that didn't have product market fit. Right. And so everything that I did was kind of spinning my wheels. So I think I would have um, kind of been more rigorous in asking companies about their stage of product market fit if I was joining an early stage one. And I would have wanted a little taste of kind of like what good looks like so that I had a mental model of like what the the map or the path kind of would look like. I, I feel like those would be kind of two cheat codes that would have helped me avoid a bunch of pain. But I think, you know, kind of that learning process you know, taking my lumps is also super valuable because it's what made me hungry. It, what, you know, what kind of fueled me to want to learn. So I don't know that it's the right trade-off, but, you know, kind of if I had to uh, do over, that's probably what I would, would do. The Facebook recruiting team is, uh, yeah, is exactly. rejoicing right now, Pour, know, pouring out of campaign hearing right. this. I'll have, to, uh, right, I'll have to use my referral code. I don't know that. Yeah. <laughs> you can send it out. Nice. <laughs> Well, Morgan, thank you so much for the time that you spent with us today. You have shared some incredible advice from your experiences and taught us about everything from principles for putting in place a growth or growth hacking team, but you don't like that phrase anymore. Growth so team's great. It works. Yeah, growth it's perfect. Team, to some of the principles at Shopify and how early stage founders should be thinking about investing in growth channels. Really, really valuable advice that you shared. Where can people find you? Tell us. For sure. They can find me on Twitter. I'm at Morgan B. Uh, my website is morganbrown.co. Awesome. Thank you again. Thanks, Sheila. Super fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for tuning in to hear from our amazing guest today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to keep in touch, please follow me on Twitter at Sheila Vashi or shoot me an email at Sheila at basisset.ventures. And if you want to hear more, we'll be posting episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud every week. So check it out. See you next week.